As for this morning, um, we are going to be back in the book of Acts. So if you would, please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. I've been uh, just riveted again, as I've been telling you all, uh, studying Acts 2, the birth of the church, because I am continually comforted by how uninnovative and uncreative and absolutely normal Grace Emmanuel Bible Church is. We have uh, the least creative set of leaders uh, because we, the best I can tell, by the grace of God, have not deviated from the church's birthday, as our pastor calls it. Acts 2 is the birth of the church. The church was born. And as we'll study again today, and as we've been studying in the previous weeks, hasn't it been encouraging to think about what the church did on their birthday, their first day, and the preceding weeks after that is what we do in body life week to week here. Has that been encouraging to you guys? I know many of you have told me. It's just been riveting to think about, wow, uh, just over 2,000 years ago when the church first met, they're doing what we do week to week. And so, here's what I want to do. I want to begin by reading in Acts 2 where we'll be today. And then I've got a little bit of an extended intro that could maybe add some, some strength to this passage. So let's start in Acts 2, and I'm going to read from 37 down to 47. And as we're reading this, remember, Luke put this in this document to Theophilus to help the early church understand what it looks like to be faithful to Christ on how and how the church operates, what's its nature, what's its role, what's it supposed to be spending its time on. And this right here would have riveted the early church. And you just imagine... Anytime churches were planted in Ephesus, in Philippi, in Corinth, in Crete, wherever, they would have gone back and seen the birth of the church to see their moorings to make sure they didn't drift. They didn't want some man-made substitute that went away from the first church God planted. So with that in mind, let's just read this with those ears, thinking about this. Acts 2, 37-47. Now when they heard this, that is, they heard Peter's sermon that pressed them on their sin and their need to repent, they were pierced to the heart. Remember, they there is the Jews that had come for Pentecost 50 days after Passover. They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? I.e., what are we going to do now that we've seen we crucified the Messiah and he, we are his enemy? Peter said to them, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God would call to Himself. And then he starts to give background. And with many other words, Peter here, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them. So he calls them to repent and be baptized and come to Christ. And now he says, and I've got some more instruction for you. Be saved from this perverse generation. Translation, leave the culture. Stop being worldly. And he's going to say, join the church. Verse 41. So then those who had received his word and were leaving the culture were baptized. And that day they were added about 3,000 souls. And as we've seen, that's more than 3,000 souls. That's just counting the men. Verse 42. What did they do after they were pierced to the heart, convicted of their sin, repented, and they've come to Christ and they were leaving the culture. What did they do? Immediately. The grammar is unmistakable. Verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves 
to four activities here. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them, as anyone might have need. Day-to-day body life, beloved. Continuing in one mind in the temple and breaking bread house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now we'll revisit that in a second. But I, I want to think about a time in history for a moment that really makes this passage significant. If you know anything about me, you know that I love church history. I love um, the Genevan portion of church history under John Calvin. That's kind of the first wave. And I love Lutheran church history under Luther in Germany. But, but probably the portion of Reformation church history that appeals to me most is the English and Scottish portions of church history. And there's a reason for that because, because really what happened in the English and Scottish portions of the Reformation, 15, 16, 1700s, really was a different type of reformation in one sense. If, if in Germany and in Switzerland they were trying to recapture the true gospel against the Roman popery and false teaching, they were also doing that in Scotland and England, but in Scotland and England the reformation really became an ecclesiological reformation. That is the word for the church. So the reformation was about how do we uphold and rightly represent, we might say, what they did in Acts 2. See, what happened in the Scottish and English portions of the Reformation is you had the monarchy trying to press in upon the church, telling them how they could go about worship. And if you've read church history, you'll know that the English and Scottish portions of the Reformation and into France, really, but we don't have as much history of France, it became the the bloodiest portions of the Reformation. And what's interesting is, as you read account after account, men and women bled and died, not just for the gospel, but for the implications of the gospel and how that played out in the life of the church. They died for their ecclesiology, beloved. They died for Acts 2. And that's always been so compelling to me. And one portion of it in particular, in the Scottish portion of Reformation history, was called the killing times. And if you... If you have not read on it, you ought to, just to realize what men and women went through for the church. They were suffering to protect freedom to worship in their local churches. Dying for their ecclesiology. And from 1660 to 1688, the killing times was the most brutal time in Scottish Reformation history. In fact, 18,000 men and women were slaughtered, executed, drowned, hung, you name it, for the church. They were called the Covenanters. If you know anything about them, I've talked about them before. They signed a national covenant, basically articulating what it was they believed, not just about the gospel, but about the right to worship in the church, what body life should look like, who should have his voice in the church, how Christ should reign in the church, what sanctification should look like in the church, and who should be able to be a part of the church. Well... You can imagine with the Church of England and its influence on Scotland wanting to stomp that out. See, the Church of England wanted to influence the pulpits and influence the churches because to get to the churches was to influence the nation. 
And so they got pretty aggressive. And unfortunately, in 1660, King Charles II struck a deal with the Covenanters and said, hey, I'll be on your team, basically. And then he betrayed them and joined arms with those in Scotland that also hated the Covenanters. And it started this bloody, bloody time. The church at that time in Scotland was called the True Kirk. The Kirk was the word for the church. They wanted to defend the true Kirk, the true church. And what would happen is they basically said, you can't worship in your churches and do body life anymore. So what they did is they started to spread out in what they called these, cov- these, um, these uh, let me see if I can pronounce it right, these co- 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 coventicles, coventicles. <laughs> excuse me. Um, I was saying it right in my mind, but basically. <laughs> Conventic- conventicles which is what they call it, where the covenanters would convene together and they'd line up on the hillsides and they would go out and a pastor would preach and they would come and they, they would worship. If you were caught in one of those, basically you were either going to be sent to America, put in prison, or killed. And if you were a pastor, pretty good chance you were going to be executed. One particular pastor was a guy by the name of Richard Cameron. Cameron was a phenomenal preacher. In fact, um, he was really well known for his ability to articulate the truth, influence people, and he was all about defending the church. He wanted the true Kirk to understand that we don't have to capitulate to kings and governing authorities. They can't tell us how to do church. They can't tell us Acts 2 is wrong. We believe what Acts 2 says. We're going to do what the Lord Jesus Christ says. In fact, in his final sermon, before he was executed, here's what he said. But we are of the opinion that the church shall be more high and glorious, and the church shall have more power than ever she had before. And therefore we declare avowedly, in opposition to all tyrannical magistrates over Protestants and over Presbyterians, that these magistrates are open enemies to God. That's the governing authorities, the the kings. Let all the world say as they will about us. Listen to what he says. We have the word of God. Love that. Mm. The work began and shall be carried on in spite of the opposition. Our Lord shall be exalted on in earth and in Scotland. He was caught a few weeks later and he was killed. And as the story goes, one of the soldiers asked for the pleasure if he could chop off his head and chop off his hands. The captain said, sure, you can do that. So that's what they did. It was a trophy for him to carry around and also it gave him the ability to get his 500-pound bounty for Pastor Cameron. But it gets worse, and just to understand the brutality of this, that particular soldier took the head and the hands of Richard Cameron to Edinburgh and he took it to the prison there in Edinburgh, the Kirkfriars graveyard area, and the prison seems that's where they were. And he finds Richard Cameron's father, who's also in prison, for his love for the church. And as the story goes, the soldier walked up and took the head and hands of Cameron and threw them to his dad. Cameron's father, at that moment, learned that his son had been brutally executed for his love for the church. Cameron's father took his son's hands and head as the story goes which were very fair being a man of fair complexion and his father kissed them and he says this 
I know I know them. They are my sons, my own dear sons. It is the Lord, uh, is it the Lord good? This is his will for me. The Lord cannot wrong me nor mine, but has made goodness and mercy to follow me all of my days. End quote. We don't know what happened to his father. Probably was executed or died in prison. But that image captures how that father even thought about the value of his son dying for the church. He did not see it as some mishap or some wasted death. He saw it as, as God's faithfulness to him that his son was even counted worthy to suffer for the church. And you say, is that really what the covenanters were being executed for? Yeah, there was actually four different reasons that they were hunting them down. And Richard Cameron and his father were, were part of these four reasons. And when you hear them, you're not going to hear this bold gospel proclamation, though that was obviously part of it. You're going to hear their commitment and their devotion to protect the purity of the church. We might say an Acts 2 church. Here's what they were being executed for. 18,000, by the way. I've stood on their graveyard. It's in the criminal graveyard. First, they would not accept our indulgences for worshiping God and had declared the bishops anti-scriptural and anti-Christian. So when they tried to come and add something that they must do in church life to be faithful, they said, we will not add something to what God says we must do. You're anti-scriptural. The scriptures are authority. Wow. Two, they would not take the oath of supremacy because they could not in good conscience allow the king to be called the head of the church. It must be Jesus Christ. The king said, you call me the head of the church, not Christ. Nope. Christ is the head of the church. Sorry, king. Three, they would not pray for blessings for the king. They, didn't, they, didn't, they were being told they couldn't pray freely. They were told to pray for a king, and here's what they said. They were told to pray for the king and swear to him, but they could not because he was a persecutor of the church and thereby an enemy of God. And until he had repented, they would have nothing to do with him. Wow. And this fourth one ought to just jolt us. Here's why else they were executed. They would not give up the liberty to worship God in public. And on the severest penalties, they were forbidden to assemble themselves together, either in churches or in private families. And believing that it was their duty, according to Scripture, to not forsake the assembly, that is, they were committed to obeying Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Because they saw that as their duty, they could not satisfy their conscience and obey men rather than God. Let me just rephrase those for you in light of Acts 2. They were no longer allowed to make the apostles' doctrine the authority. They were not allowed to call Christ the head of the church. They were not allowed to pray for what they wanted, but were being forced to pray for a wicked king. And they were not allowed to gather on Sundays or throughout the week to fellowship, communion, pray together, study the scriptures, serve one another, and obey Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And they believed it was their duty, according to the scriptures, to not forsake the assembling. And so they obeyed God rather than men. So they were killed. And they died for the church. I love that. You know why I love that? 
because it demonstrates something important to us. That we live in a day and time where people take the church flippantly. I read an article this week from this cocky young man, 12 reasons why the millennials won't go to church anymore. And, I, and he just went on to just instruct all the people in the church. You're trying to keep up with your old ways and your old patterns and your old habits. You know what? Let, let me tell you how millennials can be reached. You know what I'd like to do? I'd like to take that young man to Kirkyard Graveyard in 1660. I'd like to have him show up to Smithfield or Tower Hill in England where Latimer and Ridley and Kramer were executed and burned. I'd like to see him watch Tyndale burn for the church. I'd like to have him stand down by the shoreline when they put covenanters out by the hundreds when the tide would go out and they tied them up to post and as the tide came in, it drowned them. I'd like to have him show up there when he's telling the church what to do. See, we live in a day where people think, I got the gospel, I'm together for the gospel, I'm coalescing for the gospel, but it comes to the church, ah, we can kind of do whatever we want in the church, the church is up for grabs. And that young man said in that article, he said, I'll tell you, church, you know what you need to do? I'll be in my pajamas at Starbucks, you tell me when you're ready to get serious about reaching millennials. And I thought, you know what, young man? You don't have a clue about the church. And I think that's important for us to think about, beloved, because God loves His church. In Ephesians 3, He said, "Is is the wisdom of God put on display as local congregations meet. And so I guess I just ask you as we begin today, I know everyone here says, I'll die for the gospel, but will you die for your ecclesiology? Will you die for the local church, the ability to gather? Do you care that much about the church that you would suffer and die to be able to uphold Acts 2 and do what the church did on her birthday? I mean, that is important to think about in a day where everyone treats church like it's up for grabs. The church is not up for grabs. How the church conducts itself and her mission is not ambiguous in the Scriptures. And Acts 2 would have been a benchmark for these covenanters and anybody in church history when they thought about deviating. And I was thinking about that. If we were going to take an inventory, how would I know I'm someone that could die for the church? All you have to ask yourself is, do I live for her now? If you don't live for her now, then you could never expect that you'd suffer for her. And I love that, because with that in the backdrop of your mind, when you come to Acts 2 and you see the church's birthday, you shouldn't come to this passage and go, oh, there's another really great thing going on. No, God plants the first church. The Spirit of God, remember, comes upon the apostles. Peter preaches the first Christian sermon. God pierces 3,000 plus Jews to the heart and saves them and they're radically converted. And the first thing they do is not go to Starbucks in their pajamas or read their Wayne Grudem systematic theology or hang on the fringe of the church. What do they do? They devote themselves to body life. Look at it. When the church is born and the Spirit is among His people, His people don't take church life casually. Notice verse 41. So then those who had received His word were baptized and they were added 3,000 souls to the church. And the first thing they did, verse 42, is they devoted themselves. And a couple weeks ago I told you that word devotion there is an important term. It means a compulsion of loyalty, a wholesale commitment to be aggressive, to be busily engaged in, and to persevere when it's hard. Beloved, those covenanters bled and died in the people in church history because they were following the first church. Devotion to Christ. Right? And why? Because Christ loved His church that He paid for her with His own blood. Acts 20, 28. You should not think of the church in a, any diminished way beyond how Christ thinks of the church. And He bled and died for her. 
And so what we've been watching is the birth of the church. And it's a thrilling passage. It's an exciting passage, isn't it? We get to see church life on display. But I don't just want to come here and be warmly encouraged and say, man, this is amazing. We get to benefit from this. We benefit from this because other people have been willing to stand. And here we are in college and career, and we walk in on a Sunday, and we benefit because other men have been willing to love the church like this, but we cannot build the next generation of churches off the backs of their convictions. They must be ours. So when we come to Acts 2, this is not a passage to take flippantly. Yes, it's historical narrative, but it's historical narrative was meant to instruct the church, do not deviate. Do not get a man-centered version of this. This is what God does in a true church. This is what happened when God plants a church. And to leave this, you put your fingerprints on what God has done. So that's what we're here. The birth of the church and people were devoted. And as we've been seeing, we've got ten marks of a church here that's been planted by God. And if you remember, last time I gave you the first mark and the first couple, and that was they have a regenerate membership role. Just notice it again. They have a regenerate membership role. That's the first mark. How do we know the church is a church? It's full of believers. And someone's recognizing them and leading them. Notice verse 41. So then those who had received the word were baptized. And notice it doesn't say 3,000 bodies were added to the church. 3,000 souls were added to the church. 3,000 born-again, blood-bought believers. How do we know they were blood-bought believers? They had received the word, verse 41. They had went forward in public baptism and they were devoting themselves to church life. There's no such thing as a Christian who does not devote themselves to the church in the early church. They would have not known what you were. What are you? You say you're a Christian, but you're not devoted to Christ's bride. I don't know Christians like that. That's an American thing. So they devoted themselves. They had a regenerate membership role. That led to their devotion. Last time we saw, they were devoted to sound doctrine. Notice... Their devotion showed up in four activities. First it was, verse 42, devotion to the apostles' teaching. And remember, this whole section then is governed by the apostles' teaching. Everything that takes place, as I showed you two weeks ago, is all about what the apostles taught. It was a truth-filled congregation. Think about it. Without the apostles' doctrine on prayer, you don't know how to pray right. Without the apostles' doctrine on fellowship, you don't know what fellowship is. Without the apostles' doctrine on baptism, you don't know what baptism is. Everything in a true church is governed by the apostles' doctrine. You don't know what communion is. You don't know what giving is. Everything's about the doctrine that drove them, and we saw that two weeks ago. And that doctrine, remember, was taught by qualified leaders. It's not a true church unless there's qualified leaders. The apostles were holy, godly men. The first church was full of holy leaders who taught the sound doctrine. And now, here's our third mark. We're going to start today. They were devoted to vibrant fellowship. Devoted to vibrant fellowship. Notice, back in verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. To fellowship. And remember, devotion is the governing word here. So it wasn't like, oh, I kind of like being fellowship. I kind of like being around. No. It was a wholehearted devotion and commitment, even when it was hard. The word is to persevere even when difficult. They weren't, they weren't persuaded to back down in their fellowship because there were some people sinning against them. They moved towards people. They were devoted to it. But what is fellowship? We don't want to misunderstand this word because we sometimes think fellowship and we think hanging out with friends. Well, certainly hanging out facilitates an environment for fellowship. We think, I'm going to a meal, I'm in a fellowship. Well, a meal could help you have an environment. But true fellowship is something so much more profound, beloved. You don't want to miss this. 
The word fellowship is a compound word. Does anybody know what the word fellowship is? Two words it's combining? Fellow sure. And ship. Fell and ship? Fellow and ship. <laughs> I think you said fell and ship. I'm like, fellowship. Fellow and ship. Yeah, that, that could work. Yeah. The two Greek words are actually describing common and sharing. So it's sharing what you have in common with other believers. It is, it is the uniting and the practicing and the sharing in what you have in common. Well, what do you have in common? You have Christ in common. You have the Spirit in common. You have the striving for sanctification in common. You have your love for the church in common. You have your struggles in common, your difficulties in common. You have your sins and the battle and all of that in common. You're sharing in all the spiritual dynamics. To have fellowship is to have something in common with someone that has come here by Christ Himself and you share in that with Him. In fact, did you know that you not only have fellowship with believers, but you have fellowship with Christ because of what you share with Him? 1 Corinthians 1.9 God is faithful through whom you were called, listen, into fellowship with His Son. Jesus Christ our Lord. What do you have in common with Christ? You have union with Him through His righteousness, through the, His blood that He paid for you, through His baptism into death and coming back to life. You share that with Christ and God sees you having a common sharing, a common participation in the death and resurrection of Christ. That's fellowship. You also fellowship in His suffering. Philippians 3.10 That I might know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowships of His suffering. If you're His... 2 Timothy 3.12, those who live godly in Christ will be persecuted. If you're a true Christian and you live like Christ, people are going to treat you like they treated Him. They're not going to treat you better than Him. He never sinned and they pinned Him to a wooden cross. You can't court the culture and be liked and be faithful to Jesus. You're going to share in suffering. But what about other believers? 2 Corinthians 13.14 What benefits do we share in? Listen, the grace of of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We share in here in the fellowship of the common bond that we have because the Spirit's united us through our conversion. So when you gather together, you may have a meal together, you may hang out, but it's not ultimately fellowship until you're sharing in the common spiritual resources you have with one another. You're participating in all that God's doing in your life and the spiritual dynamics. And why that's important is because it is impossible to have fellowship with an unbeliever. Did you know that? What do you share in common with them, ultimately? What spiritual resource would you share in common with an unbeliever? This is why sometimes you can get around your family who you grew up with, who you know and you're comfortable with. You'll be talking like, man, this is hard. I try and tell them what God's doing in my life. I try and tell them about what I'm learning. And they're like, oh, man, would they be quiet? They don't celebrate. They're not excited. It's difficult. And then you get on a plane and fly back from your family and you get next to a believer and you start talking and immediately your hearts are ignited, sharing in what? Spiritual resources. You have a commonality united by Christ and immediately you're closer with that stranger than you are with your family. Why? Biblical fellowship. I want you to see this, that you cannot fellowship with an unbeliever. Turn over very quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You cannot have fellowship with an unbeliever. And beloved, this is crucial because you need to understand, with believers, when you get with them, you share in common with them spiritual resources. When you get with unbelievers, that's not fellowship, that's evangelism. That's it. You don't go and say, oh, I've got my great friends that are unbelievers that I fellowship with. No, you don't. You have nothing in common with them ultimately and spiritually. You may have hobbies together. You may like the same taco place. That's not fellowship. Fellowship is 
having a common spiritual dynamic and sharing in that life together. And 2 Corinthians 6 is so key here. You cannot miss it. And this even gets down to why you cannot marry an unbeliever. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, marry in the Lord. You cannot marry an unbeliever because what will happen is you'll be heading one direction and Christ will be transforming your life and they're not. And when you come together, if an unbeliever and a believer marry, they can't share in any of the spiritual dynamics. Does that happen? Sure. Is that unfortunate? Yes. And when people are in that, 1 Corinthians 7 says the spouse can be sanctified by that. But you ask any person that's been married to an unbeliever for any period of time, they will tell you the hollowness of that is haunting. Because they try and share in sanctification, share in the Spirit's work, share in illumination, share in their love for Christ, share in their love for the church, and it's hitting someone that has nothing in common with them on those dynamics. This is why 2 Corinthians 6 is so crucial. Look at verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. That is, do not have a spiritual enterprise with unbelievers. This isn't just marriage. This is any spiritual enterprise. This is why the whole, sometime back, there was the evangelical ECT, Catholics Together, ECT movement. And they were saying, let's get the Catholics together and let's get the Christians together and let's go launch for the gospel. Sorry, they have a different gospel. We can't be bound together with them. You can't take an unbeliever who believes a false gospel and a believer who believes a true gospel and call that a spiritual enterprise. You're violating this. You're, you're taking Christ and Satan and putting them together. That's what this passage says. But on every front, you need to understand that you cannot have fellowship in the biblical sense with unbelievers. Look at 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Watch the next line. And what fellowship... There it is. Has light with darkness. To, to mix a believer with an unbeliever and call that fellowship is like trying to take pure light and darkness and bring them together and, and act like they're going to marry. They cannot. Beloved, fellowship is the sweetest, most rewarding, most encouraging, wonderful gift that God gives us, but it happens when you share in spiritual dynamics. Do you know what this involves as well? This involves vibrant body life like we have here in one another's lives. You're getting in one another's lives. And that involves the one another's. Do you know how many one another's there are roughly in the New Testament? I've been doing a study. I'm going to do a whole message on one another's in about two weeks. There's roughly about 50 or so one another's. Can you imagine someone saying, I'm committed to fellowship. I'm committed to a vibrant approach to church life. But I just don't really get myself very involved in the church. I kind of hang back on the church. That's like saying, I love my wife, but she's told me 50 times how I can love her and I've ignored her on all 50 of them. You cannot be an obedient Christian. You have 50 commands from Christ on what you're to do in body life, in fellowship. You cannot be an obedient Christian and be on the fringe of the church. How could you obey... For example, 1 Corinthians 13, which tells you how to love and forgive people when they've sinned against you. How are you going to follow up and go towards people when they sin against you if you're on the fringe of the church? How are you going to know and share in spiritual resources and know people's needs if you don't know their life, if you don't know their prayer requests? You cannot have biblical fellowship and be an Acts 2 Christian on the fringe of a church on the fringe of relationships. You can't go around and act like you obey the one another's when you neglect, remember, devotion to church life. Remember the word that governs this? Full-hearted, full commitment, even when it's difficult, immersion into body life. You go, well, I don't know how to serve. Well, you got 51 another's to start with. 
Let's go back to Acts 2. People could be a Christian and be on the fringe of the church, certainly. They're just a disobedient Christian. 51 and others, just on that. What did it look like for these believers? Notice Acts 2, 44. Look at body life and discipleship exploding. 44. And those who had believed were gathered together and had all things in common. They're sharing with one another in one another's lives. I'll talk about this more later. But they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them. Anyone might have need. Verse 46. Fellowship for them and one another's for them and discipleship for them day to day. In one mind in the temple. Breaking bread. House to house. They were taking meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. This wasn't like, oh, I have to be a part of the church again. This is, I love the church. I gravitate towards the church. It is my life, notice it, with gladness and sincerity. They loved the church. Beloved, you got to understand that these early believers were devoted to one another's lives. And notice, day to day, house to house, that's implying discipleship. That's implying meals together. They were meeting with one another. There were 2 Timothy 2 relationships, men exhorting men and discipling them. Titus 2 relationships, women exhorting women. There was one another's going on. They were literally all in one another's lives. Doesn't that encourage you about our church? We are a meddling church. We are a devoted church. Why? We got 51 and others at least. And if we sin against each other, we got a lot of forgiveness to seek. We got a lot of ways to move toward one another. And all of that was driven by sharing in spiritual resources under the banner of truth, the Apostles' Doctrine. You can't even have a biblical view of fellowship unless you understand what the Apostles teach on fellowship. Everything was governed by the truth. <clears throat> Notice that this, was, this fellowship was about unity as well. They were moving towards one another. They weren't letting microaggressions get in their way. They weren't letting disagreements on truth get in their way. They were moving towards one another. Notice 46. Day to day, continuing with one mind. That is one accord, one purpose, one impulse. That is to say, beloved, when they saw that they had a discrepancy with another person in the body of Christ, or they saw they didn't agree on truth with someone, they got with them to see how they could have reconciliation in the relationship and understand the same truths and come to the same convictions. They were in one another's lives in that level, that close range, devoted. So, beloved, think about this. A church that's been planted by God has vibrant fellowship rich discipleship, and a commitment to one another to be in one another's lives at the closest level, and that's all governed by truth, and they don't act like when we're with unbelievers, that's the same as when we're with believers. When we're with believers, we're all about sharing and what we have in common. And when we're with unbelievers, we're all about preaching Christ to them. When the Spirit invades a heart, there's a gravitational pull towards the church. If someone's not getting drawn into church life, they should wonder if they're a Christian. When the Spirit pierces the heart with soul-piercing conviction over sin, these believers jumped in. They didn't sit in their pajamas like that guy and tell the church what to do. They went and served her. That leads into a couple other dynamics of fellowship that doctrine was driven by and that fellowship was governed by. Notice, we've got some more marks here. The next two, and we'll finish with these today. Here's what else they were devoted to. Breaking of bread and prayer. Well, that's part of fellowship too. Breaking of bread there is speaking of communion. You may think, well, breaking of bread, how do we know that's communion? Well, there's a couple reasons for that. But one, look at the context. 
Some would say that in this context, breaking of bread is talking about having a meal together, not communion. But he talks about having a meal together in this passage. Notice, look at what he says. He says there, verse 46, Day by day they were continuing in one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. There's communion. And they were taking meals together. It was both. So the first mark that I want to look at here of a healthy church, of one planted by God, is they were committed to communion. Which means something, beloved. They were committed to remembering Christ. What is communion? Communion is where we come together and do what Jesus said to do. Remember, He used this very language. Mark 14, 22. While they were eating, He took some bread. And after blessing it, He broke it and He gave it to them. And He said, take this of my body, break this bread and remember me. So a true church is devoted to what? Remembering Christ. Communion is a way that signifies that when we take communion. But all of church life for them was all about being devoted to remembering Christ. A true church lifts up Christ. It sings about Christ. It talks about Christ. It exalts Christ. That's what it does. And when it takes communion, it's remembering Christ. But remember, if breaking of bread is communion, beloved, and by the way, breaking of bread happens in communion all through the book of Acts. That means that this church was also serious about something else, wasn't it? If it's going to be serious about communion, then it's going to be serious about talking about sin. In fact, 1 Corinthians 11 says that there's a warning there about communion, isn't there? Be careful that you don't take communion in an unworthy manner. And it qualifies it. Unrepentant sin in your life that you're not willing to deal with or unreconciled relationships. So a church that's devoted to remembering Christ and taking communion is a church that's devoted to talking about sin and talking about our need and talking about the need to even when we sin against others, reconcile with them. In fact, just look at 1 Corinthians 11 real quickly. You've got to see this for yourself. Notice verse 27. Communion is not a small thing, beloved. Sometimes I shudder, beloved. I'm telling you, I shudder when I think about people in unrepentant sin or won't reconcile relationships taking the Lord's table. I think, do you realize what you're doing? Look at 1 Corinthians 11, 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks and eats with, without discerning the body, eats and, drinks the judgment on, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then look at what he says in verse 30. God was so serious about communion and people taking it in the right way, and he says this, That is why many of you who are, are weak and are ill, and some have died. People that were taking communion in an unworthy manner, God put them to sleep and took them to heaven where they were sick. So when we're talking about a church that's regularly breaking bread, that's a church that's regularly talking about examining their hearts before Christ, right? Thinking about their sin, thinking about sanctification. So beloved, think about a church that regularly has you come and take communion but never talks about sin. Think about a pulpit that diminishes the view of sin, that redefines worldliness and does not talk about it, and then tells everybody, come remember Christ, think how great you are with Him, with no discussion on repentance, no discussion on sin, no discussion on reconciling relationships with people that you may be sinning against. Beloved, think about that. 
A church that celebrates communion on a regular basis that does not talk about sin is cutting people off from really experiencing true communion with Christ because that comes through repentance and confession and brokenness. And then we remember what he did for us. Me, this wicked sinner. He, the one that paid the penalty. Wow, what a savior. Hallelujah. I take this bread and I take this cup. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for me. But what if that church has a diminished view of sin? Small view of sin, small savior. Oh, it's really nice. I'm glad I get to take communion every week. This makes me feel really good. This is like what I did at my Catholic church growing up. Oh, this is nice. But I don't think about it in contrast to the fact that I am depraved and wicked and hell-deserving. And even this week there was enough sin in my heart. And two hours ago there was enough sin in my heart that I need to take to Christ so I'm right with Him. So when I come and worship Him, my heart is broken and I'm really appreciating the cross. Find a church that doesn't talk about sin but celebrates communion. They're deceiving people. It's not a church planted by God. Not a church planted by God. These were called to remember Christ. You know where a church where Christ is sweet and people worship a big Christ? Where they have a right view of sin. When you see sin rightly and the contrast of Christ's mercy to you, what? That's why John MacArthur always says, hard truth makes soft people. Soft, cheesy sermons that dumb it down to keep people in the building. They want bodies, not souls. Yeah, they could take communion, but people aren't thinking about that Christ the way they ought. And to imagine that you walk people into communion on a regular basis not thinking about the danger of an unworthy manner, wow, that's, that's a scary thing. So, we've seen of these ten marks, they had a regenerate membership role, devoted to sound doctrine, devoted to vibrant fellowship, involving the one another as a culture discipleship, one-minded unity, devoted to remembering Christ, Serious view of sin, relational, uh, relational reconciliation. And then this fifth mark, notice they were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. You know what's sweet? I was this morning in the elders' prayer. I get the privilege to come to every week and sit in. And I was thinking, every week at our church, now for 18 years since Pastor Jerry's been here and probably before, the men sit there and they pray. They're devoted to praying and they pray for you and they pray for you and they pray for you (laughs) and they pray about body life and they pray about the Spirit's work and they pray about the morning and if you go around the church you'll find other pockets of people praying. And on Thursdays when my leadership team comes here we meet over in that room because we pray that the Spirit would be working in your guys' lives on a Thursday night. And if you go to home groups and Bible studies we're praying. Why? Because a prayerful church is acknowledging what? I'm dependent. I cannot do this on my own. If Christ does not work we're bankrupt. Nothing's going to happen. A praying church, a church that's devoted to prayer, is a church, it's a true church, because they realize we cannot manufacture this. We cannot create something. God must do it. I love, I read a story of Charles Spurgeon on prayer, and you'll love this. Any of you know Charles Spurgeon from Metropolitan Tabernacle? He's a pastor downtown London. He had these hotshot seminary students come visit him one week, and they didn't know what he looked like. They just knew they needed to hear the Prince of Preachers. So they show up to MetTab, and they get there early. We don't want to miss a seat. And their goal for coming, these young seminary students, was, we want to come because we want to see where the power is in the Prince of Preachers. (laughs) So Charles Spurgeon walks out. They don't know it's him. And he greets them. Hello. How you doing? Hey, how you doing? They don't know it's him. They kind of just kind of blowing him off. You know, hey, hey, hey. And they say, he says, what are you here for? We're here, to, we're here to hear the Prince of Preachers. We want to see the, where the power is in Met Tab, Metropolitan Tabernacle. And as the story goes, 
It was a warm July day and the students were not interested in hearing from him. But he says to them, would you like to see, men, where the church's heating plant is? Where the church's heater is? And the story goes, they're like, well, we're here to hear Charles Spurgeon's effective sermons. But since we don't have anything else to do, they politely went with their host. So he walks them down. They step down and he opens up a door and with a subdued voice he says, There, gentlemen, is our heating plant. And they were surprised to see there were 700 people from Metab praying in the morning for that Lord's Day. <laughs> and then he notified them that he was Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> and he was leading the meeting for prayer in the morning for the church. He showed them the heating plant, where the power came from. That's a true church. They don't imagine they can manufacture growth. They don't imagine they can stir something. They don't imagine a marketing plan is going to do it. They don't imagine having good programs on Sunday mornings is going to really crank it out. They don't imagine they can go make church up without the Spirit coming and working. A true church is full of humble, dependent leaders who are prayer warriors because they know left to themselves, nothing will happen. Nothing. You get to a church that claims it's a church with a bunch of independent um, marketing guys who are manufacturing all their growth and they've got bodies in the building but who knows if they're souls? That's not a church planted by God. A church planted by God is full of a bunch of men that gather together and say, Lord, you must move. You must act. We're dependent. Give us the heating plant. Turn on the lights. We need you. We need miracles and conversion. We need miracles and sanctification. And the early church did that. Acts 6.4 The leaders were devoted to prayer. Ephesians 6.18, prayer and petition filled the church's life in Ephesus and the surrounding churches. Romans 12.12, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Beloved, we got more to look at, but just think about us here at Grace Emmanuel, how privileged we are. You know, I was reading about the North Korean church this week. Have you read about them? So the North Korean church is facing the greatest hostility of really anywhere in the world, it seems. Do you know that when parents come to Christ in North Korea, that under the dictatorship there, they're so committed to eradicating Christians like they're rodents, they, think of it, they want to exterminate the entire race. If they can get Christians out of North Korea, they can make it pure. When parents come to Christ, they can't even tell their children, oftentimes, that they've come to Christ because the children are put in schools and indoctrinated about the danger of Christians and children will go to the government and sell out their parents and their parents will be executed because the child went on impulse because he was told in school to tell any time he hears about a Christian. Do you know what the, the Korean believers want to do? Oh, they just want to meet together. They would love to come to Lord's Day worship. They would love to pray with one another. They would love to study the Apostles' doctrine. Man, if they could fulfill a one another in public, just one, they would be so grateful. And here we are this morning. Free to worship. Free to enjoy it. My kids on the way over, we were talking about body life. In fact, the discussion came up on who's the better preacher, Pastor Darren, Daddy, or Pastor Jerry. And Brady's in the car. I mean, think about how openly, just the, the humor of this. Hudson says, Jerry's my favorite preacher. And Wiley says, Daddy's my favorite preacher. And Brady's getting in there. He's not sure. He's in the mix. And I said, guys, Pastor Jerry's a much better preacher than Daddy. And Hudson says, Dad, I know that with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
I said, Amen, son. Amen. That happened on the way to church this morning, but I can talk with my kids about the church. Guys, do you take the local church for granted? Seriously. I mean, it's funny the illustration, but think. These Acts 2 believers, as we're going to go in Acts, they start dying and suffering for the church. In Acts 7, we see our first martyr. In Acts 9, Paul's hunting them down. We see Paul on trial. We see executions. And here we are, my Bible open, Brian Arnold coming through. We're going to walk across the hall with a donut and a coffee and go hear a sermon. And we're going to fellowship. And we're going to go to lunch. And I can bring my Bible and you can too. Do you take that for granted? We ought not. These Acts 2 believers, the reason they were devoted is because they didn't take it for granted. If you're not devoted to the church, it's because you take for granted what Christ purchased for you. And you ought not to do that. And don't tell me you live for the, you'll die for the church until you prove you live for it. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see more marks. They share resources. They fear God. They exercise church discipline. They have a warm spirit. They have effective evangelism. And they baptize publicly. And there is so much more. And it's so encouraging. And you're going to say, wow, the Lord put me in a real church. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. But do you take it for granted? Or will you be part of the next generation so that another group of young people can come in someday and say, wow, what a church. And you can tell them, yeah, we couldn't take it for granted. And you better not. Because the church in Ephesus took it for granted and they lost their first love. It was 33 years from the church's Ephesus' inception to the loss of their first love. Second generation. Me and you took over the church. And she lost it. The problem is we didn't. We forgot the privilege. This is a privilege, guys, to be a part of the church. And to neglect it is sinful. And to love it is right. And the Lord loves that. So let's be people who are devoted to the church. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us for ways we've become callous and indifferent and take lightly what we have. If we were in North Korea, I guarantee we would long for a single minute at Grace Emmanuel. And if we were the Covenanters, Lord, we would say we will die for what you have purchased. We will not take it for granted. Lord, those in here even today that take church life flippantly, that hang on the fringe, that won't obey the one another's. Lord, let them see that is sinful. Repent of that and find joy and forgiveness in the gospel. Be reconciled to you and love your church like you do. And those of us that strive and struggle and yet we know the call and we experience the fruit, thank you for being merciful to us. We would have never, on our own initiative, found ourselves in this healthy of a church for the most part, and yet you've drawn us to it, you've given us to us. Help us to never go back to something shallow, some, some meal replacement for the true meal, some mannequin for the true, true reality. Lord, we love your church. It is your bride. Help us to push against the culture that treats the church flippantly. You do not. You love the church, and we want to love it too. We are devoted, Lord, and forgive us when we're not. Help us obey the one another's, Lord Jesus, and be an Acts 2 church. And pray for other believers that don't have that, that you would keep them strong. And Lord, help us to not ever for a minute take for granted that we get freedom to worship. And if you take it from us someday, help us be those that have convictions that will even die for the church. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. You guys are dismissed.